I believe it was Ronald Reagan, when running for president, who asked the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Are you better off now than you were four years ago? I don't know what politics are like in the Philippines. I don't know what politics are like in Colombia or any other place that many of our people come from. But I do know that politics here in the United States has become about convincing voters of who has the best plan to make your life better. You hear the debates that happen between the the, um, the candidates, and it's all about who has the most feasible plan to make your life better. Who can convince you the most effectively that they have the ability to make your life better? I promise to make your life better by lowering your taxes. I promise to make your life better, make someone's life better by raising your taxes. Make your life better by doing any number of things. It seems that we have come to expect that of our leaders. That we put them in office so that our life can be made better. And if they don't accomplish that over the course of four years, we replace them with someone else. Those that we want to be led by, we have the expectation that they will do something for us. We follow them because of what they can do for us. That's not a new idea. We've been making our way through John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. And this is the, the last of our little series here on those that Jesus encounters in these two chapters. We've seen Jesus encounter a Pharisee in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 4, he encounters this half-blood Samaritan. And now, later in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46, we see him encountering a royal official, a servant of Herod. Let's begin reading in verse 43 of John chapter 4. And after the two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Verse 46. He came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to Jesus and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, please come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go away, go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, and they therefore said to him, Yesterday, 
At the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed. And his whole household. This is again the second sign that Jesus performed when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So here you have a man who was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. He's in the area where Jesus had already performed some miracles, and we'll look at that more closely in just a minute, but he comes up to Jesus with a plan. He has an idea of what he wants Jesus to accomplish for him. Jesus had already done many signs and miracles in the area. This man comes to Jesus as a miracle worker. This is not the first miracle that was done in the area. John records for us a number of what are called signs, these miracles that Jesus does to give almost proof that he is who he claims to be. It gives some level of of authority, that he's not just some wacko claiming to be someone that he's not. The first one was in John chapter 2, where he turned water into wine in the town of Cana. We see Cana again in this chapter, but earlier in John chapter 2, there was a wedding feast. Jesus was there. He was invited. His disciples were invited. The mother of Jesus was invited, and they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus says to Jesus, they have no wine, which was kind of an embarrassment. Jesus says to her, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to begin this kind of ministry of miracle working. His mother says to his servants, to the servants, whatever Jesus says to you, I want you to do it. Now the mom knows something about Jesus that nobody else knows just yet. And there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So here you have these symbols of Jewish law of their servitude to Jewish law, the requirements of purification rituals, all these things that they had to do. Huge things, 20 gallons, 20 or 30 gallons. I have at home, was like five-gallon buckets? I mean, picture four to six times that. And Jesus says, fill these pots with water, and they filled them up, and he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they took it to him. It tasted it and it become wine. So the first miracle that Jesus does is in this little town of Cana where he takes these symbols of their servitude to Jewish law and turns it into symbol of joy and redemption. Then we see in John chapter 4 where we are today the healing of this nobleman's son In chapter 5, we see him healing a man who had been lame from birth. In chapter 6, we see him feeding a multitude, thousands of people. We also see him walking on water. We see him in chapter 9 healing a man born blind. And in chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. These are all signs they're supposed to give them some sort of, proof's not a good word, but some sort of evidence that what he's saying carries some authority. In fact, in John chapter 5, he 
gives, he makes claim to many different uh, uh, witnesses to his authority. He appeals to the Father, appeals to John the Baptist, to his works, to Scripture, to Moses even. And so you would think that it was all effective. But seeing these things, they would believe. It's not the case. John chapter 12, verse 37, though Jesus had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. So when this man comes to Jesus asking him to heal his son, Jesus' response is, you people, all you want is signs and miracles in order to believe. And when he gives it to them, they don't believe. At the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, John tells us why he included all of these things. He says, many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed. So what he did here isn't all that he did. Jesus did many more signs and many more miracles, even beyond what John records for us in the Gospel of John. He says, many other signs Jesus, therefore, also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. Why? Why did John include these? These have been written in order that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So these aren't just stories. These are things that actually happened. And John records these miracles for us with the purpose of having seen them, our hearts would be pointed toward greater faith Christ. So in chapter 4, we have this man coming to Jesus who has returned to Cana, returned to the place where he turned the water into wine, where he took the symbol of slavery to the law and turned it into a symbol of freedom and joy and redemption, sacrifice. This man who had heard of it, I'm sure, has a son who is sick. A royal official. Possibly even a servant of Herod himself. Whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. This was his base of operations for the first couple of years of his ministry. He was aware of Jesus knew that Jesus was able to do things that others could not do. So when he heard that Jesus was nearby, verse 47, he went to Jesus with a request. I don't want to read too much into this. This is, this is a narrative, but I, I do see that there is a parallel here. Whenever we go to Jesus as opposed to him coming to us, we almost always go to him with a purpose. We go to him with a plan. We go to him with a request. Think about before you were saved. Before Jesus caused the scales to fall from your eyes so that you could see what was previously offensive is now a glorious salvation in Christ. Before you came to Christ, 
why would you go to Jesus? You ever heard of fox? What was it? Foxhole Christianity, what's it called? The idea that when you're in, you're in war or you're in some sort of crisis, that's when you turn to God? Before you really know him, the only purpose you have for him is something that you will appropriate him to do for you. I know that's the case for me. This man goes to Jesus with a plan of his own. His only use for Jesus is to accomplish something that he wants. Requesting him to come down and heal his son. For his son was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you, and that you is plural, he's not just talking to the man, he's talking to, to all the people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the man says to him, sir, please come down before my little child, literally, before my little child dies. And I love what Jesus says to him. He says, my translation says, go your way. I don't know here if Jesus is being reassuring and saying, you can, you can go on now. The way it's worded, it could be as literal as, okay, walk away. Take a hike. He could be saying, I, I have no use for the kind of faith that you're coming to me with. All you want from me is what I can do for you. You don't come to me because I am worthy of your coming. You come to me because you think I can accomplish something for you. He could also mean it more reassuringly. You, you, you can go on now. I understand. Your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him when he started off. My interpretation of verse 50 here is that when the man comes to Jesus and says, please, I need, you, I need you to come with me. I need you to come back and heal my child. I need you to come do one of your, one of your miracle things. Jesus says, okay, you can go on. Your, your child's alive. Your, your boy's alive. It's okay. And you'll notice the man's response. It doesn't say he believed Jesus. Because he believed the word that Jesus had spoken. I think at this point, the man sees Jesus as a miracle-working prophet. He's able to kind of understand and to see, okay, it's all right, you can go now because I am a prophet. I, I, can, I, can, I can assure you that what the, your son's okay. He's still alive. You can go home now. He's still alive. And the man believes what Jesus said. He and, I think at this point, what the man sees is that the miracle is that Jesus is prophesying. What you, what you don't understand, sir, is that your boy is still alive. You can go now. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him. Now, when, when, the man, when the father left his house and went to go see Jesus, his son was alive. The, the, the father talks to Jesus, and Jesus says, your son is still alive. 
And he's on his way home now, and the slaves come running out to meet him while he's still en route and says, your son's still alive. I, I see no reason for the slaves to come running out and meet him and tell him that unless something had changed. Unless the miracle had been more than Jesus saying, your son's alive. If the, unless the miracle is more than a prophecy offered on the part of Jesus, there's no reason for the slaves to come running out and meet him halfway. Are you with me? Slaves ran out and met him, saying that his son was living. That his boy was still alive. So Jesus asked them when this happened, asked them of the hour when he began to get better. And they therefore said to him, yesterday, the seventh hour, his fever left him. Ah, there's the reason why the slaves come running out to meet the father on his way back. Because not only is he still alive, but his fever's gone. He has been healed. The miracle was more than Jesus prophesying. The miracle was that Jesus healed him. And so the father knew, verse 53, that it was at that hour which Jesus said to him, your son lives. At that point, the light bulb goes off and he understands. What Jesus has done is more than having the ability to predict or access to some just knowledge that he doesn't have. What Jesus has done has shown that he has authority over even illness. He has cured the man, the boy. And when he begins to see Jesus as who he is a bit, then his faith turns, verse 53, he himself believed. He believed in his whole household. He had faith in Jesus as more than just a prophet. This is the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea and into Galilee. So just a few observations from these verses. First, I want to point out to you that it's not the father's faith that healed this boy. It was not the father's faith that healed this boy. Jesus did. The father's faith did not heal this boy. Jesus did. The father's plan did not heal this boy. Jesus did. This man comes to Jesus with an idea of what he wants Jesus to do. Jesus, okay, I, I know that you're a miracle worker, but, but this is what I want you to do. And this is what he's accustomed to. He's a royal official. He's accustomed to coming up with plans and having people see them through, putting things into place and accomplishing things. He comes to Jesus with a plan of what he wants for, th for this miracle worker to do for him. That's not what saved this boy. It was Jesus. Same is true for us. I think usually in the New Testament when you have these healings, they, they are pictures of what happens to us spiritually when we come to Christ. In fact, oftentimes the word save is used when Jesus heals someone. That a person has been made well, they are, they are literally, they are saved. 
These healings in the New Testament are, in many ways, pictures of what Christ does to us spiritually. We may initially approach Jesus with this idea of what he can do for us. All right, Jesus, I'm going to come to you because I need for you to do this for me. Or at least maybe we initially think we're going to come to Christ not because of who he is, but because of what he can do. And I think proof of that is the attitude that many of us had, anyway, before we came to Christ, of, well, I will come to church, or I will, I will consider these spiritual things once I get my life together. You're not coming because you consider him worthy. You're coming because you think he can do something for you. Now, can he do something for you? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. But was Jesus worthy of this man's faith, even if he chose not to heal this man's son? Yes. So the first observation, it was not the father's faith, it was not the father's plan, it was not the father's authority that healed his son. Jesus did. And Jesus didn't really even do it because of this man's faith. But he kind of chastises him. He lumps him in with a bunch that won't believe unless they see signs and wonders. And yet he does it anyway. So the first observation is that it is Jesus who accomplishes his work in us, not us. Our growth in Christ, our faith, our initial faith in Christ, all of it is, is wrought by him. We have no ability to make this happen. Did this man have the ability to have his son healed? No. He at least recognized to some extent that this miracle worker could do it. But the only use he had for this miracle worker was to do this. And when he sees that this miracle worker is worthy of so much more than just becoming another tool in his tool belt, then he believes. Not just him, but his whole household. Second observation kind of builds off of what we saw in John 2 when, when Jesus went in and cleansed the temple. He saw all these people buying and selling in the temple. And he got so upset. And he overturned the tables and he drove everybody out. Like he also did it later in his ministry as well. Do you remember where these things were happening? in the court of the Gentiles. There was, there was no place for a non-Jew to come to the temple. And Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've taken what was supposed to be a place for the Gentiles to come and encounter the things of God, and you've turned it into matters of convenience for your own worship. Jesus is saying, our worship of God is not about us. We don't come out of convenience. We come because he is worthy. So just as God does not desire to be worshipped out of convenience, 
Jesus doesn't desire to be approached out of mere selfishness. The Father came to Jesus with a plan of his own. How many of you are where you thought you'd be five years ago in life? I hate questions like that. Where do you see yourself in five years? I don't know. I have to make something up every time I'm asked that question. I don't know. I've never been where I thought I would be in five years. And thank God for it. Even the desires of our hearts are sometimes placed there just for a while to move us in this direction, for God to take us from here to there so that we can go from there to some place that is as yet unforeseen for us. He doesn't give us a blueprint of what the next 20 years of our life, much less the next five years or the next week of our life, is going to look like. And we can and should be responsible and make plans and and... You know, try to, to plan for the, the future, but as James says, we, we shouldn't say that we're going to do this, but if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We need to be responsible about the future and planning. But if your only use for God in your life is to get you to that point, then you have completely missed the identity of Christ. Completely missed it. Completely. If your aspirations for building your life or your reputation or your image are greater than your aspirations for the image of Christ to be seen among the nations, then you're not following Christ for who he is. You're following Christ for what you think he can do for you. So the father's faith did not heal this boy. Jesus did. The father came to Jesus with a plan of his own, and Jesus... Jesus met his own desires for the man. This man didn't come saying, save me, (laughs) give me faith, convince me that you're the Messiah. He came saying, do this for me. And in doing that, Jesus brought him to a greater realization of who he is. And that changed not only his life, but his entire household. Third observation. We've seen over the course of these chapters, Jesus speak with a Pharisee in John chapter 3. There's Nicodemus, who comes to him by night, who's so concerned about his image, so concerned about what people might think. He comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus immediately confronts him with something that he knows he's going to have a difficult time accepting, but out of which we get the verse which is probably most quoted from all the Bible, that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That given to a legalistic, pharisaic Jew. Then we saw in chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well. One that's considered an outcast. One out on the not just on the edge of society, of Jewish society, but beyond the edge of Jewish society. The Jews would rather just forget about the Samaritans. One who had doctrinal confusion, one who had ethnic exclusion from the people of Israel. 
one whose past was checkered, whose sexual sin had made her an outcast even among her fellow Samaritans. And Jesus says to her, I will give you water, living water that will spring up within you and bring new life. So you have Jesus showing that his offer of forgiveness, his offer of new life, his offer of all that he has accomplished on our behalf, going to a legalistic, pharisaic, religious observer, to a Ethnic, sinner, outcast. And now you have it going to a Gentile. A Pharisee, a Samaritan, and now a Gentile. As, as the song says, friends, there, there is room at the cross for even you. When Christ is preached... When you read the word and you, you, you feel the Spirit shepherding you toward greater Christ-likeness, is your reaction to humbly and obediently follow? Or is it to put it off so that I can get my life right first? If it's the latter, you are on very thin ice. Jesus doesn't say, try harder. Tell me your plan. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? don't know quite what to do with that when it comes to Jesus. I'm not any more saved than I was four years ago. The moment you become a child of God, you are as much a child of God as you will ever be. I'm not any more adopted into the family of God than I was four years ago. I'm not any more forgiven than I was four years ago. Am I more Christ-like than I was four years ago? I hope so. But may God guard us from approaching Jesus the way we approach our politicians. May God guard us from thinking, what have you done for me lately, Jesus? May God guard us from following after Christ just because of what we think he might be able to do for us. Instead, may he give us hearts that desire to love him and to worship him for who he is. The Messiah the Christ, the one who takes our servitude to sin and turns it in to freedom through servitude to Christ. My goodness, there's so much in these chapters, John 3 and 4. What do you, what do you see with, with his interaction with the Pharisee? Are... are do you ever wonder what, or worry about what people are going to think of you if you approach Jesus in the light of day? 
Jesus knows that, and yet he still says, come to me. Do you worry about what people are going to say if they see you talking to Jesus at the well, even though they know the sins of your past? It's okay. Jesus knows that. And yet he still says, I will give you springs of living water. Are you worried that your approach to Jesus is because you think he can do something for you? Well, in a sense, I want to say that's okay. Because he can do something for you. And he will do something for you. Just realize that even if he doesn't do something for you, he's still worthy of your worship. Right? Up, down is yes, left, right is no. All right. Politics is about convincing voters of who has the best plan to make your life better. Friends, I encourage you to not look so much about whether Jesus makes your life better, but rather whether Jesus is better than your life. Because in him, his life becomes yours. What he has accomplished in his life becomes yours. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so weak. Lord, our faith is so weak. Lord, we confess that at times you seem far away. We confess that at times Jesus seems far away. We confess that there are times when our hearts are prone to wander. We confess that there are times when we find ourselves in a dark night of the soul. And we ask you, Lord, that in those times, help us to rely on what Christ has said, even if we cannot see Christ. Help us to trust his word. Remind us, Lord, of those times when Jesus said, I am with you now, but the time will come when I am not with you. That he said to his disciples. That he made the promise that when Jesus was removed from the midst of his disciples, that there would come another one, an encourager and a helper, who would bring back to mind the words which he had spoken. And so when we find ourselves in this age where we long for the coming of Christ, that he is absent physically from from this world, we ask you, Lord, to bring back to mind the things that he has spoken, the promises that he has made. Help us, Lord, to trust his word, even when we do not see him when we find ourselves in a dark night of the soul, when he seems far away, remind us of his promises. Remind us that he who has begun a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Remind us that what he has accomplished for us is not dependent on our ability, 
to do. Remind us that our salvation in Christ is not dependent on our ability to keep it. Remind us that our faith, that our obedience is not dependent on our ability, but because of our inability, we are shepherded by the Spirit to walk in these things. Remind us that in Christ we have been delivered from the servitude to sin and into the freedom of servitude to Christ. That we follow after our Christ who is worthy. Worthy of our worship, not just because of what he can do for us, but worthy of our worship because of who he is. Help us to see the things which he does for us And to see them as grace and mercy. We pray all of these things in the name of this glorious Christ, who in mercy and grace invites us to come. Amen.